Good morning. Good morning. So I'm gonna I'm gonna preach until I feel like I'm gonna pass out from the heat, okay? Or I sense that some of you are about to pass out from the heat. We'll just no. In all in all seriousness, I was asked to try and keep it fairly short. So I think uh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try try and do that. Um, I actually want to start off on a on a bit of a serious note, and I, and I I'm always sensitive and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I recognize that there are visitors among us. And so what I'm about to say might be, I don't know, uh, offensive or you might uh, misunderstand, but I need to take that risk because I'm speaking to my church family and I hope that you would come back and not walk away with some soundbite sort of interpretation. Um, Many of you know that ICE agents are going on raids today. And I just want to say that we as a new community stand with and follow a dark-skinned Middle Eastern refugee we 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 follow the one who fled his home country to seek refuge in another land and i am 100% about obeying laws of the land so don't get me wrong on that but we as followers of christ also ask are the laws just are the laws Laws that honor the dignity of human beings created in the image of God. That is a question we must ask. So we as a church, thank you by the way, ladies. I heard our lady staff did an amazing job last week. Uh, Heard from Korea, so thank you for that. And I know Emily did an amazing job of leading you through that. There are ways that are in your bulletin of way we can respond. Please pay attention to those things. So I just wanted to say that. Be in prayer, call your representatives, and be responsive to how the Spirit might cause us to respond. Amen? Okay. Uh, I was in Korea uh, for uh, 11 days visiting my parents, and it was a wonderful trip. I am still struggling with jet lag, so as I joked, <laughs> if, if, I, if I look like I'm f- falling asleep, that's because like, I am really sleepy right now, okay? It's, it's, uh, it's like midnight in Korea, one in the morning, and so my body hasn't quite adjusted, so hopefully this will do, and the Holy Spirit will sort of power me through this, but it was really good to be with my parents. Um, they're aging. My dad's 80. My mom's 75. When they moved back to Korea about 13 years ago, and so I try and see them as much as I can. If you're Asian, you know, un- understand intimately um, that we, as Asian Americans, wrestle with what does it mean. I wanted to honor our parents in their elderly stages, and I, at the same time, obviously, honor and be faithful to our immediate families. And that's a challenge when they live like 8,000 miles away. But it was good to be with them, and I look forward to sharing with you more about stuff that I learned and stuff that I became aware of. But I saw a lot of this in Korea as we jump into our sermon series, Sacred Rhythms. I saw a lot of this. Can you put up that picture, please? I saw a lot of that. Everywhere I went, I saw a lot of that. And it got me thinking. It got me thinking. How you and I have these stock images. I think of what an addict is. Here's the next image. I think we like to think of an addict as 
someone with a heroin needle in their arms. We like to think of an addict as the next picture, someone nursing maybe a bottle of gin in a brown paper bag at like nine in the morning. I think we want to think of addiction or an addict as something that's criminal, something that's out of the ordinary, something done in the back alley somewhere because I think it keeps us from coming to grips with this hard truth, maybe. Maybe we're all addicts. Someone said addiction is this. I love the definition. Addiction is manic reliance on something, anything in order to keep our dark, unsettling thoughts at bay. I don't know. Maybe we as a culture are addicted to noise. Studies out there shows that most of us can't stand silence for more than, do you know, did anybody know this? 15 seconds. Have you ever been in social environments? <laughs> the group of evil. And you always have that one person, right? Like there's a moment of silence. And then the discomfort rises. And there's a one person who just can't stand, maybe it's you. The moment of silence, you have to break that silence. Why? I think deep down inside, most of us fear silence. I think we shun it. I don't know, maybe we as a culture are addicted to people. And what I mean by that is being with people. Now, this is tricky because we as Christians know that community is critical for life of flourishing. But guys, there's a huge difference between being in community because it's important. And check this out, being afraid of being alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, beware, let him who cannot be alone, beware of community. Let him who cannot, you know what he's saying? He's saying that you and I are actually dangerous to community when we are uncomfortable being alone. Why? Because we look to community to meet needs that only God can meet. The best gift that we can give each other is a self that's been so soaked in the presence of God and so filled by him that we are not looking to others to fill us. As Henry Nouwen said so powerfully, the movement is solitude, then community, then ministry. Solitude, then community, then ministry. Then, of course, there's lastly, I think we're all addicted to doing, being productive. Anybody? Anybody? We live in a performance-oriented culture where we just don't feel comfortable if we're not being productive and achieving and so much so that we equate worth with what? Being useful. You're not useful. You're not worthy of anything. So what do we do? We hustle for our worth. Child of God, don't ever hustle for your worth. Can I get an amen? Your worth is not something you negotiate, you bargain with. Anybody else grateful for the gospel that tells us that our worth is not found in anything that we do because our worth is found in what Christ has already done? Is that good news to anybody? But has that soaked into you? Has that soaked into you that you find your ultimate worth not in what you do but what Christ has already done? 
See, maybe all this activity, all this noise, all the busyness is really one big exercise to keep these dark, unsettling thoughts at bay. Maybe all of this is a big distraction because we maybe deep down inside know when we're alone and quiet and allow whatever thoughts to come to mind, whatever feelings to come to the surface, it might terrify us. This is why Dallas Willard calls silence and solitude the two most radical disciplines in the Christian life because there is nothing, there is nothing, hear me, there is nothing in our culture, in this noise-addicted, people-addicted, performance-addicted culture that supports the disciplines of being alone and quiet and still. Our souls rage against it. Our minds fight against it. And if Jesus is 40 days in the desert when he is alone and quiet is an indication, it is spiritual warfare. Child of God. And yet, there is nothing more critical to the spiritual life. There is no disciplines more critical to the spiritual life. A couple of definitions we've been working on. One is solitude. What is solitude? Solitude is the practice of being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. And silence is the practice of quieting every inner and outer noise to attend to God. But before it is a practice, we've been saying it is first and foremost a decision. Everybody say decision. A decision. What is? It's a decision to deliberately exercise the discipline of letting go. Because in solitude and silence and stillness, we let go and deal with another addiction that we don't talk about, and that is our addiction for control. We let go. Let go of what, Peter? Let go of our, our trying to manage outcomes. Let go of what, Peter? Let go of our, our, our need to control people and circumstances and also God. By the way, this is the reason why silence is so important because for many of us, you know what prayer is? Prayer is another exercise in trying to control God. Hello, anybody? Can, cannot say. Prayer is another exercise for us to control God. That's why God says, be quiet. I will not be controlled. So in silence and stillness, and I've gotten emails from folks who say, Pastor Peter, I realize it's an act of trust. Yeah, it is. Because when you are alone, quiet, not doing anything, you have to ultimately trust. Are you in control or is God? Are you managing your family or is God? Are you managing your future or is God? Who's in control of your, is it, is it you or is it God? And it is that discipline of saying, I'm letting go and trusting that you're in control. But what if things fall apart, Peter? They will. The things that God never intended in the first place. I'm going to tell you right now, some of you are exhausted. Do you know why? Because you walked in here trying to manage and control things that God never gave you in the first place. There is a relationship that needs to fall apart because God never intended that for you. 
and you are trying so hard to manage that. There is a business venture that God never intended for you, somebody. You're trying to, there is, there are ministry opportunities that doesn't have your kingdom assignment on it. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor is built in vain. You need to let some things in your life fall apart. Can I get an amen? Because God never intended that for you. And when you're not doing anything and still and quiet, in grace, God says, I'm going to unravel some of these things, okay? As a gift of grace. Well, what if I fall apart, Peter? Church, what am I going to say? You will. The part of you that needs to fall apart is the part that finds this identity in what I do and what I accomplish. That is addicted to what people say and what people think about me. Part of you that wants to control, manage outcomes, people, and things. Part of you that wants to live your life independent of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That part of you that we call the false self around here, that false self needs to fall apart. But here's the good news. You ready? It's only when we fall apart that God is able to, what, build us back together again. We've been looking at the story of Elijah. I love Elijah. Do you know why I love him? Because he is so human. Because he is so human. Here's 700 BC, nation of Israel is being ruled by Ahab and Jezebel, who've instituted worship of the pagan god Baal in Israel. The nation is in tatters politically, spiritually, economically. And they've killed off all of God's prophets, so Elijah thinks. And the one that they're really after is Elijah. So Elijah invites him to a showdown on Mount Carmel on 1 Kings 18. We saw that, right? And what does he do? He prays that God will show himself big. God rains down fire on sacrifices. The prophets of Baal are killed. Ahab and Jezebel run for their lives. And Elijah is at the apex of his career. But it's at that point that we come to 1 Kings 19. By the way, before we look at it, you know what I love about the Bible? Someone says that scripture is easy enough that a child is able to understand. But it's also deep enough that it'll take PhDs all of their lifetime to go with his steps. So we could spend 1 Kings 19 for like next four years. But we won't do that, okay? So we're going to continue to just... Look at 1 Kings 19 and draw out insights. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Talked about this a couple of weeks. If Elijah was rich and had a servant, it'd be one thing. But Elijah doesn't have a servant because he's rich. Elijah's a servant because he's what? He's a prophet. In other words, this is his one person staff. And so when Elijah says, you can go, he's saying what? I quit the ministry. I just want to want, I just want to ask. Has anybody ever, ever uttered those words? God, I, I'm done serving you. Anybody? Anybody? I'm going to ask one more time. Has anybody ever got, God, I'm done serving. Anybody? Anybody? Oh. Okay. 
It's too hot in here to be honest. Okay, I understand. He does some amazing things to all of us. Because I've been there many a times. I was there a year ago. While he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough! Anybody ever say those words? I'm done with you! I'm done with this! Take my life! I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah is in despair, disillusioned. He's suicidally depressed. Then he lay down under the bush and he, in a fetal position, <laughs> fell asleep. I said this a couple of weeks ago, it's, it bears repeating. Don't let anybody tell you that if you're spiritually mature, you won't find yourself dealing with setback, despair, disillusioned, depressed. Don't let anybody tell you that if you're a strong Christian, that you won't struggle with that. Scripture filled with people who struggled with suicidal depression. Moses, Numbers 11, take my life. Jonah, chapter 4, take my life. And by the way, these came right after enormous ministry success. It is the integrity of the Bible to show this. I just got to ask, is this good news to anybody? If you weren't here, I shared three weeks ago that I struggle with depression. It's been a journey for me to deal with that and recognize that. And by God's grace, God's grace, I'm learning things about myself that I look forward to sharing with you more. But as I thought about this passage, as I thought about why the Bible doesn't, listen, the Bible, listen, listen, for those of you who grew up in church, I grew up thinking the Bible shows these flawless, strong, superhuman characters. Anybody else? Anybody else? And the subtle message a lot of times was, be like them. I can't tell you the number of sermons I heard. I call these moral sermons. Be like David. You mean an adulterer? Be like Moses. You mean like a murderer? Be like Abraham. You mean like a coward liar? Be like Noah. You mean who was drunk and found himself naked in front of his kids? Be, should I keep going? You know what's amazing about the Bible? The Bible doesn't show these characters and say, be like them and God will save you. Check this out. Jesus Christ comes. Jesus Christ, the central figure in Christianity. He doesn't come and say, live like me and you'll be saved. He says, you couldn't live like me to save your life. So I came down and lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And by placing your faith and trust in me, you could be my son. Holy cow. Scripture says that these flawed, depressed, suicidally broken mess of a humanity, I break into their lives despite them and extend grace, redeem them, and use them for my glory. God loves using the weak to shame the strong. God loves using the foolish to shame the wise. Is that good news to anybody? It is if you're weak and foolish. Like me. And you. Verse 5. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and thereby his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, 
for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. How does, how does, how does God treat Elijah? How does God treat Elijah? Here's the church I grew up in. <laughs> I, I, I walk in broken and disillusioned. What you need is a sermon on how to not be discouraged. Okay. What you need is another lecture. What you need, actually, if you're tired, here's another mission to snap out of it. What does God do? God takes care of his physical needs. He takes care of his body. Apparently, God thinks caring for our bodies is a spiritual act. Hello, anybody? If Elijah's story points to anything, it's his truth that oftentimes that's where it all begins. Do you know why we struggle with this? Give me like two minutes on this. Do you know why we struggle with this God cares for our spiritual practice to take care of our body? I was in Korea, and Korea is like many other, many other nations and countries. Walking down the grocery store, everywhere you go, you see magazine covers, and magazine covers, news everywhere, it says one thing, and that is be obsessed with your body. Idolize your body. And rightfully so, you and I ought to go, that's toxic and that's sinful. But you know what we in the church have done? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you heard a sermon on the theology of the body? Crickets. So do you know what we in the church have done? We said, that's not going to be us. So here's what we do. We are going to completely ignore the body and just focus on the spiritual. It's like this form of modern Gnosticism that says the body is bad and it doesn't matter and the spirit. I'll tell you how this worked out. I grew up in a church culture and I thank God for them where the hero person was someone who ate ramen every night, got up at four in the morning, never slept, and didn't take care of his body and he ran himself into the ground and everybody thought, for the glory of God. And I did that for years. But the toxic, dangerous thing that that mentality leads to, please listen, is this. It's not, if you go, body doesn't matter, the spiritual, body doesn't matter, the spiritual, here's what happens. So when you're disillusioned or depressed or struggle with mental health, God forbid, the problem must be spiritual. So the solution has to be what? Spiritual. So we go, why do you lack faith? Why do you not pray enough? It could be spiritual, but why do we think it's only spiritual? Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Can I just say this? Here's what God thinks of the body, okay? First Corinthians 6, Paul says, our bodies are a temple, what? Of the Holy Spirit. Somehow, in an explicable, profound way, the Spirit of God inhabits this physical being, and we live our spiritual life, not in some other disembodied human body, but in this body. I'm not just a soul and a spirit. I am an embodied human being. And you best believe how my body is will affect my spiritual life. Are you hearing me? 
Come on, how many of us are more prone to temptation when we're tired? My wife has a saying to me, don't go grocery shopping when you're starving. Why? Because everything looks good. It's amazing how appealing sin looks. Okay, I won't finish that sentence. You'll have a hard time hearing the voice of God if you're exhausted. See, for some of you, I want to hear God. I want to hear God. The problem might not be some gross sin. If it is, repent of it. It might not be some other problem. The problem is you're just too exhausted and tired to hear from God. And the most spiritual thing you can do, child of God, is to get some more rest so you could be alert to hear God when he speaks. I could just hear someone say, I'll tell you what they say, CC. They go, look, look, I work 70 hours a week. I don't have time to rest. You don't know what it's like to work 70 hours a week. Uh, first of all, I do know what it's like to work 70, 80, 90 hours a week. So you're right. I don't know what your life is like. So let me just take this moment to ask you a couple questions. Who asks you to work 70 hours a week? My bot, my employer, my co- Who tells you that you can't rest? And while we're at it, one more question before we move on. Why are you at that job anyway? You ever sit with those questions? Ever just sit with them? Ever just sit with them? Moving on, verse 8. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. Everybody say 40 days and 40 nights. Until he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Oh, this, is, this is where I'm going to end today, okay? The food for the, 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 the provision of God was for this journey. And the angel alludes to this journey, 40 day, 40 night journey, back in verse 7, when, he, when the angel says to Elijah, what? This journey is what? Too much for you. It's too much for you. So I'm going to provide this provision so you can go on that journey. We'll come back to that in a second. Why, why Mount Horeb? What is Mount Horeb? Mount Horeb is known as another name. Does anybody know? Anybody know? It's so Mount what? Sinai. Sinai. What is Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai is a place of possibility. Elijah knows back in his history bank, in, his, in, 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 in the history, in his memory bank, that, that Mount Sinai is the place where Israel went to meet God. Elijah knows that Mount Sinai is the place where Moses saw God in a burning bush and called him to deliver his people. Elijah knows that Mount Sinai, oh, check this out, we're going to be going here in a couple weeks, is that place where Moses said, God, I'm tired of these people. I can't go with them unless your presence goes with us. And God says what? I will show you my presence. And God hides him, check this out, little, little teaser. God hides him in a cave. The same cave, hello somebody, that Elijah's in, hello. We'll get to that a couple of weeks, okay. And God says, I'm going to show you my hindsight. And God passes by Moses. Mount Sinai is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God. Mount Sinai is the place where Elijah knows if I have any hopes of encountering God, that is where I go. And he travels 40 days and 40 nights to get there. 
Do you ever wonder what that journey was like? Can I show you a map of what that journey was like? I'm going to attempt to jump so I could point to Mount Sinai. Don't laugh at me. I'm not going to jump for you. I'm not entertaining you today. You see that bottom of the red? That's Mount Sinai. You see the top of that? That's where Elijah went from. Mount Sinai. What do you see everywhere to get to Mount Sinai? Say it with me. It's the desert. Not just one. Not two, but five, six, desert. Desert of Sinai. Desert of sin. Desert of sure. You ever wonder when you read the Old Testament, what the heck are all these? Desert of sure. Desert of Paran. The eastern desert. For 40 days. Stay with me. I know it's hot. Don't miss this. For 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah treks through the what? Say it with me. The desert. The desert. In silence and solitude and stillness, he treks through the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to encounter God. I want to ask, anybody familiar with the spiritual desert? Say yes if you do. Anybody familiar with the, if you are a Christian for like a month, you know that at some point it's not a matter of if, but when we will all traverse through the desert. No exceptions, which included somebody, by the way, who comes on the scene centuries later. And God says, I need you to go through the desert. Do you remember his name? His name is what? Jesus. Check this out in Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the, say with me, the desert. <laughs> by the way, this room preaches itself, okay? You don't have to imagine what's that like. You're in it, the desert. Where for 40 days, and 40 nights, he was tempted by the desert. Listen, there's nothing magical about 40 days, but there's something absolutely biblical about it. The desert is the transition from Jesus moving from his earthly father's ministry to his heavenly father's business. And Jesus, in this transition to move from his earthly father's business to heavenly father's business, is tested in the desert like never before. And yet, and yet, and yet, the testing in the desert is what enables him for the ultimate victory that we sang about this morning, which is victory over Satan, sin, and death on Calvary. But do you remember what the testing in the desert was about? I preached on this, you know, like six weeks ago. The testing in the desert is the enemy, the father of lies. Oh, anybody else hate him? Some of you walked in here this morning. 
him singing music in your ears, believing all the lies. The enemy comes, the father of lies, and tries to derail Jesus from living his life, totally surrender to the will of the father. How does he try and do that? He attacks and assaults Jesus' what? Identity. Who are you? I can't even make this stuff up. He and I did not even talk while I was in Korea. And I walk up here this morning, then rehearsing, and what does he sing? I know who I am. Do you think, if you know, that happens all the time. Jesus is assaulted by the devil in the desert with his identity. Do you remember? Turn these stones into bread. The lie of the evil is what? You are what you do. Perform, achieve. Nobody knows who you are. Second lie, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Second lie, the identity and I am what I have. What? Have. And if that wasn't enough, go to the top of the temple and jump out and the angels will catch you and all the people will see it and believe that you are the Messiah. The third lie is you are what other people what? Think of you. Everything that ails us is about this. Who are you? Will you succumb to the false self, the lies of the enemy that says, you know, I am what I do. That's why I can't stand still. Are you kidding? You know what? I am what I have. And so I got to go out and make stuff. You know what? I am what other people think of me. How can I possibly stand in silence and not hear voices of people saying, you're amazing. But Jesus emerges from the desert and the power, oh man, oh man. Look at, look at, look at, look at how that narrative ends. Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned to Galilee. Say the following words with me, ready? In the power of the spirit, Jesus emerges from the desert more clear about who he is, whose he is, and what he's about. The desert. How many of y'all right now are in the desert? No one has been more helpful to me in understanding this than Henry Nouwen. Please read anything and everything you can get a hold of by Henry Nouwen. Can I get an amen? I know that's not really that, you know, spiritual, but, but please. Henry Nouwen has a quote that I've read to you before, and I know it's been like, hopefully today I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak. Henry Nouwen absolutely nails why the practice of silence and solitude is so hard for us. Listen to what he says. It's, it's a bit long, so I'm going to take my time and say a couple comments. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is a place of what? Conversion. The place where the old self dies and the new self is born. The desert is that place, he says, where that part of us that needs people's affirmation and proof. That part of us that finds my identity. I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I make. That part of us that I want to control and manage and now come. That part of us that says, I can do it, I don't need God. That part of us goes to die. So that we can be born. 
Then he, in the rest of this quote, just nails why silent solitude is so hard and yet so critical. Listen to what he says. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. You live in Chicago, you see scaffolding all the time. People constantly working on businesses, restaurants, and houses. Anybody know? That scaffolding, that scaffolding that you and I call life, listen to what he says. No friends to talk with, no phone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. In this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, run to my work, run to my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I'm worth something. I try to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my, see, false self and all its vain glory. The task is to persevere in my solitude. Robert Frost, in his beautiful poem, A Servant to Servants, says that the best way out is always through. The best way out is not to say, nah, I'm done, I'm going back. The best way is not, I don't know about that, I'm scared, I'm going to. He says the best way out is through. The best way out of your false self is through hard inner work hard is to stay in my cell what what a metaphor what a picture stay in my cell until all the seductive visitors get tired peter you are what you do sarah you are what you have Tim, you are what other people think. Pounding on my door. The struggle is real. Because the danger is real. It's the danger of living the whole of life as long, long defense against the reality of our condition. And check this out. I'm finishing with this. The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness. Who am I if I don't do have? And other people say I'm. Forces me to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to Jesus. Because in silence, stillness, and solitude, I learned that Jesus, I don't really believe that Jesus is all that I need until Jesus is all that I have. We've succumbed to the lies of the enemy. It says, if I don't 
do more, I'm nothing. If I don't have more, I'm nothing. If these other people don't think of me that way, I, we've succumbed to the lies and we've lost our way. Can, can, can anybody say, that's me? And do you see why silence, stillness, and solitude is so critical and yet so hard? You and I run from it because when we're in it, we are confronted that we're living a lie. You see, in the stillness of the desert of silence, when I'm not doing anything, Peter comes to realize how much of my identity in almost 50 years of my life has been found in what I perform and what I achieve. And in the silence of the desert, when I don't have you coming up and saying, there was a wonderful sermon, thank you for speaking to my life, I have to realize my addiction to people to validate me and to say that I'm okay. And in the poverty of the desert of nothingness, I recognize how much of my identity is wrapped around what I have, what I accumulate, and how much I define success in terms of the world. Whew. The desert is that place where our false self goes to die. And this is where Please don't miss this. I'm almost done. This is where the spiritual practices of solitude, silence, and stillness come into play because what they are, church don't miss this, they are literally practices of dying to ourselves. Because when we choose solitude, silence, and stillness, when we choose to enter into it, we recognize that that part of us that is addicted, attached, dependent, dies a small death. But here's the good news. The paradox of the kingdom says, it is only when I am willing to die that I can truly live. It is only when I am willing to die to myself. Words of Jesus. Any of y'all want to come follow me? Deny yourself. Carry the cross. Then come follow me. It is where resurrection happens. Central to our faith is this belief that death comes before resurrection and the cross comes before the crown. Do you want to live do you want to live, not just exist, but live? Say amen if you do. Anybody tired of just existing and, and live? Anybody want to be free? Anybody want to be free? I'm sorry for this metaphor, but brave heart, good Lord. There's no other metaphor, no other picture. Mel Gibson, when he cries, what? Freedom! The truth of why that resonates is because bottom of your soul, there is a cry longing for freedom. True freedom. Freedom from bondage to human affirmation approval. Freedom from finding our identity what we do. Freedom from what people think. Free to live with clear sense of purpose and meaning. Who wants to live? Who wants to really live? If you do, then you first need to die. And when you enter solitude, silence, 
and stillness. You are saying to your heavenly father, I want to die. You see why it's so hard? Did you see why it's so hard for us? Are you kidding me? You don't want to die. I don't want to die. Everything in me says, I don't want to die. And there's part of us that says, I want to be free. Got to choose one. Whose voice? Speaking of. I'm just saying with this. How did Elijah? How did Elijah traverse through the desert? Do you remember what the angel said? Angel said, the journey is too much for you. So the provision of God. Oh, CC, CC, I thought about you this week when I saw this. The provision of God and the provision of God for the journey for Elijah was what? Bread and water. You have something better. I have something better. And that is we have the bread of life and the living water that never ends. And that is what replenished Jesus. Back to Jesus. And that is what replenished us. Do you remember what Jesus received in terms of provision before the desert? Here's what he received. Luke 3.21, as he was praying, what was he doing? What was he doing? What was he doing? Praying. He was praying. Heaven was opened up and the Holy Spirit descended out of him like a bodily form, like a dove. And a voice from heaven. Voice from what? Say it again. Voice from what? Whose voice is the loudest in your life? Is it the voice from heaven? Or is it the seductive, powerful voice? Whose voice is the loudest in your life? Is it the voice from heaven? And remember, I find that God speaks the loudest when I'm what? The quietest. God speaks the loudest when I'm the quietest. Whose voice? What did he hear? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. A ridiculous question. If Jesus needed to hear this voice to traverse through the desert, how much more do you and I need to hear that voice? How much more? Can you hear his voice? Can you hear that voice? Can you hear, Sissy, come on up. Can you hear the voice of your heavenly Father? Can you hear, everybody, look up here. Can you hear the voice from heaven? When the seductive, powerful voices come in silence, solitude, stillness, that says, you are what you do. Can you hear the voice of your heavenly Father saying to you and me, you're my beloved. When the powerful, seductive voices come to you and say, you are what you have. Can you hear the voice of heaven saying, my pleasure over you is all you need. And when you hear the seductive, powerful voices pounding and saying, you are what they think. You are what they say. Come on, don't let them down. Can you hear the voice of your father saying to you and me, but you belong to me. 
Can you hear his voice? Psalm 4.4, when you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Trust in the Lord. Silence is the difference between sight and insight. Silence is the difference between happiness and joy. Silence is the difference between fear and faith. Your life is too loud. Be silent. Pray with me. Here's what I'm going to do. 